worship. Well, good morning, everybody. It's always good to be here to see all of you. I want to spend time now just going to the Lord in prayer, lifting up the different countries that we're praying for. As you know, we got a lot of wars going on, and there's a lot of needs around the world. This morning, I just read in between uh, a mother in Israel crying because her 11-year-old daughter was taken by Hamas, and you can imagine the, the grief and the pain of that. So let's prepare our hearts as we uh, go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning that we can gather as your people, Lord, freedom. We often take it for granted until it is removed, but we do thank you for it. Father, we lift up what's going on around our country. We pray for our nation that you would bring revival, move in our president, our leaders, our governor. We pray for the power of your Holy Spirit, Lord God, to work in this country. And we pray for revival. We pray, Lord, for wisdom for our leaders as we are dealing with this delicate situation between Israel and the other Arab nations. We pray, Lord God, for eventual peace resolution, and we pray that in the carnage and death and war that, Father, the gospel would be preached, relief organizations would come through. Father, we lift up our persecuted Church of the Month in North Korea. We pray, Lord, for the power of your spirit to work in this dark area. Open up the hearts and minds of people there, and we pray that the gospel message would spread. We pray for Dublin Baptist Church, our Church of the Month, that you would bless this fellowship, that they would be Great Commission focused, and that you would work in this fellowship for your name and your glory. And Father, we pray for all the various things going on here, that you would use Northwest Chapel, that each of us would be witnesses for you, where we go, where we shop, all the things that we do. Just take a minute right now to lift up a need that you may have, quietly, an unspoken. Father, we thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. Before we get into God's word, two things I want to mention to you. Uh, we were able to go to uh, Dublin High School, and uh, we were able to give the gospel this Thursday. We fed them spaghetti. Um, Paul Kilzer did a great job. He gave his testimony. I came up, stood up on the, the table, preached the gospel, and was getting ready to lead the kids in the sinner's prayer. And one of the coaches came in and he said, stop. He said, pray for the meal right now. He cut me off. Didn't want me to do the sinner's prayer. The good news is the gospel was presented. And so that's a praise. I heard during my presentation, the coach walked out. He was very, very upset. So that's okay. We want to preach the gospel. That happens. And uh, so we praise the Lord for that. A second thing that I want to mention is we're going to be relaunching our men's ministry. Now, the men's ministry was going and then COVID hit and it kind of just took it out of commission. So we're going to be relaunching the men's ministry. It's called Iron Man Men's Ministry. And basically, here is our mission of what we want to accomplish. We want to develop Christ-like character in men who will become better disciples, fathers, spouses, and leaders. And starting in January, here are the goals that we want to engage in. First of all, we're going to have a men's breakfast the first Saturday of every month in the Commons. It's going to be at 7.30 to 9. We'll go through a book of the Bible, and we'll do that every month. And then we're going to do a spring men's retreat one or two days. We'll do one service project in the summer together as men. We'll have a cookout in the late summer, early fall, 
what is that called? It's, it's like a meatathon, right? It's just pure beef, right? We've got the, we got the meats here at Northwest Chapel. And then we'll probably get together for Ohio State uh, football gathering or maybe a Miami Hurricanes, we'll see. But uh, we'll get together and uh, have some food and fellowship. So these are kind of our goals. Now, some of you ladies are going, what about us? Well, that's coming. I've been working with Marianne January. Sometime in the early new year, we're looking at relaunching the women's ministry. The women are doing a lot of stuff, but we're going to pull it together. And so these two good-looking guys here are over the men's ministry, so I'll let Phil uh, sing us a solo. No, no you don't want that. Um, just wanted to take, take a moment, though, and thank Mike for his enthusiasm. It's very important to any men's ministry that you have the support of the pastor, and we definitely have Mike's support. So I appreciate his new direction, new emphasis on this ministry. Um, what I also want to ask all of you, men and women, is to pray to God over the next few months, as pray with us that this ministry does take hold and it really influences and that God moves in the men of this church to get involved and take advantage of all these opportunities that we're going to have for you to fellowship, to discipleship one another, and just to come along the other side of men of the church. So again, I invite you to join us in that prayer. Um, I'll turn over to Tom. This is not our uniform. This is just what we coincidentally happened to. We did not get together on this, <laughs> but it just turns out that way. I was speaking with a couple of you in the commons, and I, I, I realized that all it takes is just an appetite, an alarm clock, and a calendar to get involved. So thank you. <laughs> Spoken like a true man, right? <laughs> Thanks, guys. We have a sign-up that went by, sign-up for men's ministry we'll have in the weeks to come. Uh, you won't be able to make all of the events or the monthly breakfast, but uh, if you sign up, it helps you to make a drive a stake in the ground, make a commitment. So we look forward to doing that. Many of you probably never heard of this missionary by uh, George McKay. George McKay lived in the 1800s, early 1900 era, and he was a missionary to Taiwan. He's from Canada, and from the age of 10, he felt a strong pull and a strong call to go to the mission field, and he wanted to go to Taiwan. Taiwan was an unreached area, and so he went to that area, and he spent 57 years there doing the work of the Lord. In fact, they say he planted 60 churches, he baptized 3,000 people who came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, he started a theological school, started a, another university, started a hospital, and one of the things that he would do in order to reach people is they would do these evangelistic campaigns where they would pull people's teeth. They didn't have the technology back then that we have today. And so they would go into these communities and they would offer this dental service. And while they were extracting the teeth, they would sing hymns because the people were in pain. They say he extracted thousands of teeth during his ministry. George McKay and his wife were definitely doing the work of the Lord. How about you this morning? Are you doing the work of the Lord? Are you serving the Lord Jesus Christ? The Bible says in Matthew chapter 6 that we're to seek first the kingdom of God. If we're seeking first God's kingdom, then we're going to want to do His work. We're going to want to advance His kingdom. Well, God wanted the Israelites in the Old Testament to do His work, but they had a stall, and they weren't serving the Lord like they should have. So I invite you to turn to the book of Haggai. We are starting a new Old Testament book. Some of you wonder, the book of Haggai, is that even in the Bible? It is in the Old Testament. It is a small Old Testament postcard because it's only two chapters, but it is a book that is loaded with information. And the title of this message is The Priority 
of serving the Lord, the book of Haggai. Now, while you're looking, I'm going to have you multitask here. I want you to notice the screen because I need to give you a little background on this book. Once you get the background, the book will make that much more sense. Now, if you remember, the Israelites in the southern kingdom were warned by God through the prophet Jeremiah, through the prophet Ezekiel, Habakkuk, among other prophets, they were warned that if they did not turn from their idolatry, God was going to raise up the Babylonians and he would basically take them into captivity for 70 years. Well, the people didn't learn. They didn't listen to the prophets. They rebuffed them. And so what happened was basically here, Nebuchadnezzar, under Babylon, he came to Jerusalem and in three successive waves, he took captives back to Babylon. The first wave, we know three people that went, Meshach, Shadrach, and Abednego. The second wave, there was a man that went. His name was Ezekiel. And so he ministered to the captives during that time. And then a third wave went. And the third time he took captives, what he did was he destroyed the temple, destroyed the walls, raised the temple to the ground. Well, 70 years transpires. And now we go to the next slide. You'll notice that the Israelites came back to Jerusalem in three successive waves because God promised the Jews, that they would return back to their land after 70 years. And so the world empire shifted. Babylon is no longer in authority. You have Persia and Cyrus, who, by the way, is predicted in the book of Isaiah, makes a decree that the Israelites can go back and re rebuild their temple. And this happened in three successive waves that they went back. I'll show you in a minute exactly the timeline of that. But the first group that came back to Jerusalem was instructed by God to rebuild the temple. Nebuchadnezzar had destroyed it, and so they come back. And by the way, only about 49,000 came back, according to the book of Ezra. 49,000 came back from Babylon. A number of them got so comfortable in Babylon that they stayed there. Only 49,000 returned to the land, and they started to rebuild the temple. They laid the foundation. But then, because of certain factors, they stopped doing the work of the Lord. God's work was for them to rebuild the temple. They stopped it for about 15 or 16 years. The temple lied in ruins, and they rebuilt it. And so whenever God wants to get our attention, especially in the Old Testament, he would raise up a prophet. And so he gives the Israelites a one-two punch, Haggai, Zechariah. These two prophets... God raises up to rebuke the people. Now, Zechariah is far more complex. If you read his book, he gives a lot of visions, and he encourages the people, talking about how the temple is going to be rebuilt and God's going to do something with them. Haggai goes right for the juggler vein, and he confronts them and says, hey, you're not doing the work of the Lord. You are stalling. My temple lies in ruins, and you're neglecting it. Now, to give you an overview of this to show you this diagram, I'm a visual learner. Babylon here is the world empire in which they were there 70 years. Now Persia comes into power. And the first wave that came back from Babylon was under the leadership of Zerubbabel. The people stopped building the temple, so God raises up Haggai and Zechariah, one-two punch to challenge the people to rebuild. Then there's a gap of about 57 years, and in that gap, 
you have the book of Esther and the events that took place. We don't know the exact timeline, but you're familiar with that book. Then Ezra was the second wave that came back from Babylon to Jerusalem, and he reformed the people. And there's an Old Testament book called Ezra. All right, you could read that book. Then there's a 12-year gap, and then there's a third guy that God raises up from Babylon to go back to Jerusalem, and that's Nehemiah. He rebuilds the wall. This group rebuilds the temple. This Nehemiah and his leadership rebuilds the wall in 52 days. And then Nehemiah may have come back uh, a second time. He went back to Persia, came back. And during that time, the people had started to fall into idolatry again. So God raises up the Italian prophet Malachi. <laughs> and Malachi comes forward. And as you know, he confronts the people with their sin. And then, of course, you have finally 400 years of silence before John the Baptist shows up on the scene, and now you have another world empire, you have Greece. So you go from Babylon to Persia to Greece, and then after Greece, you have Rome. So that's sort of the overview timeline as we get to the book of Haggai. Now, what Haggai is going to challenge the people is to do God's work. Stop neglecting the temple. You say, what's the big deal, Mike? The temple was the center of the religious life. To not have the temple was to not worship God the way God wanted to properly be worshipped. And so God confronts them. And listen, it's the same with us. We're called to do the work of the Lord today. And listen, we don't want to limit doing God's work just to the building on Sunday morning. Yes, we serve God in the children's ministry, the youth ministry, or ushering or greeting or serving food. And thank you for all of those who are doing that. But listen, it's not limited to that. I was in South Carolina a couple weeks ago and I went to one of the groups that I started, and uh, the leader of the group who took over when I left, he was telling me and the group that he was in a grocery store, and this particular gentleman is a wealthy guy, he's very generous, and he has a heart for the Lord. He said he was in the grocery store, and a woman had her groceries, and she put in her ATM card, and it said decline. And so she did it again. She called the attendant and said, not insufficient funds. And so he heard what was going on. He pulled out his wallet and he said, ma'am, he says, I'm going to take care of your groceries. And he puts his card and he pays. And she's like this. You don't have to do that, sir. The Walmart worker there, whatever grocery store it was, he was like, well, sir, that was very, very nice of you. He said, the reason I'm doing this is because I worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. See, that's doing the work of the Lord. It's not just limited to the building. In fact, God wants you to do His work. You know what He did for you? He empowered you and gifted you at the moment of salvation. You were given at least one spiritual gift. You were given a mosaic of gifts so that you could serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So for God, doing the work of the Lord is a priority. Now, as we embark upon the book of Haggai, we're probably going to take three or four weeks to get through this book. The first principle I want you to see in this book on doing the work of the Lord are, what are some of the problems that we face whenever we do the work of the Lord? What are some of the problems that we encounter when we serve the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, Haggai is going to show us some of the problems that most of us deal with when it comes to serving the Lord Jesus Christ. The first problem that Haggai mentions to us is that of procrastination, that of procrastination. How many of you in here are procrastinators? Raise your hand. I'm surprised you admitted it. <laughs> Notice, if you will, verse 1 of Haggai 1. In the second year of King Darius, now Darius would be the Persian king, Babylon has faded off the scene, 
On the, in the second year of the king Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came through Haggai, the prophet, to Zerubbabel, son of Sheatiel, the governor of Judah, he would be the political leader, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, he would be the spiritual leader. And so we see here the word of the Lord came to Haggai. This is the first prophecy that was given to Haggai. Now, there were four prophecies given in this book. Here are the dates, and this is based on modern calendar, not some of the calendars based in the Old Testament. But here are the four prophecies given, August 29th, September 21st, October 17th, and December 18th. There were four prophecies that were given to Haggai. And by the way, whenever God would speak to the prophets, prophets would do one or two things. They would foretell or they would foretell. Foretelling is like Jeremiah. If you don't repent, God's sending the Babylonians and they're going to crush you. That's foretelling. It's preaching the Word of God. Foretelling is predictive. It's making a prediction. In 70 years, Babylon's coming. So prophets would engage in foretelling and foretelling. What you have here is primarily foretelling, although in chapter 2 of Haggai, we're going to see some foretelling that is going to take place as well. And so notice Haggai, when he gets this word from the Lord and confronts the people, notice God confronts two people. He confronts the political leader, Zerubbabel, and he confronts the spiritual leader, Joshua. Whenever God wants to deal with problems, he raises up leaders to solve the problems and move the people. Whenever there's a problem with the people, God will confront the leadership first. Why? Because leaders have influence. Leaders are accountable. So if there is a mess in our nation, he's going to confront the leaders of this nation. If there's a mess in the home, he's going to confront the man, the head of the home. That's not to say that he's always at fault. If there's a problem in the church, it comes back to leadership. Again, we're not saying leaders are always to blame for everything, but God deals with leaders. Why? Because leaders have influence. That's the definition of leadership. Leadership is influence. Now, it could be good influence or bad influence. Hitler was definitely a leader. He had influence, but you know what? It was bad leadership. Now, I want you to notice in verse 1 how he deals with this issue, or rather verse 2 of procrastination. It says, the Lord of hosts says this, these people say, the time has not come for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. There it is. The people said the time had not yet come. They were procrastinating. They started to lay the foundation of the temple. They started to rebuild the temple, but then it went by the wayside for 15, 16 years. We'll see in a minute what happened and why that is, but According to Ezra chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, they laid the foundation, but because of laziness, because of opposition, they ended up putting it off, and they procrastinated and did not do the work of the Lord. I was reading about a guy named Raoul, was his last name. He was the commander over the British troops during the Revolutionary War, and he was in Trenton, New Jersey, and this, I believe, was on Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Do you remember when uh, Washington was getting ready to cross the Delaware River and it was frozen and the weather was very inclement? Well, a note was given to this commanding officer of the British troops named Rao. He was given a note that basically said Washington was getting ready to cross the Delaware River. And you know what he did? He put it in his pocket because he was playing cards with his commanders. 
And so after he got done, he pulled it out and realized the gravity of the letter, and he immediately tried to dispatch his troops, but he ended up getting killed, and so did his commanders, and many of them went into captivity. Why? Because he procrastinated, he delayed. You know, we all struggle with procrastination. Do you remember in high school, those subjects you didn't want to deal with, that you struggled with, you would often put them off last because you didn't want to deal with them? We all deal with procrastination when it comes to serving the Lord. In fact, here are some common excuses that we give when it comes to doing the Lord's work or serving the Lord. I don't feel like it. I got too much going on. I'll do it tomorrow. That's the classic statement of procrastination. When I make my fortune, then I will serve the Lord. When I'm done worshiping my kids and making their school and their sports my God, then I will serve the Lord. When I get my degree and get married and settle down, then I'll do the work of the Lord. When I finish my career, when I retire, when I'm done traveling, when my job doesn't have as many demands, then I will serve the Lord. You see, we all procrastinate, and behind the procrastination is typically excuses that we give. Now, I understand there are seasons in life where we serve the Lord and we do His work. Sometimes some seasons are more intense than other seasons. Sometimes we get health issues and we can't serve the Lord like we want to. God understands that. Or if you're married to a non-believing spouse and your non-believing spouse has certain demands, although you're not to follow your spouse completely, your first responsibility is to the Lord. If you're married to a non-believing spouse and they say, I don't want you going to church, I don't want you doing this, you have a right as a woman to disobey your husband. Now, that doesn't mean you're in church every, every time the doors are open and you neglect your husband. So I get it. There are mitigating factors in life. But listen, all of us who know the Lord Jesus Christ, we ought to put him first by serving him. That doesn't mean you're putting 20 hours into the church. But it does mean, just like the Israelites, their ministry was to rebuild the temple. That was doing the work of the Lord. That was serving the Lord. You and I are called to do the work of the Lord as well. And too often, if we're not careful, we procrastinate. Well, tomorrow I'll do the work of the Lord. No, the Bible says today is the day to serve the Lord. Why? Because you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You're not guaranteed tomorrow. And listen, what you do now affects time and eternity. The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Today is also the day of serving the Lord. Because listen, when you serve the Lord now... You are investing in eternity. And listen, you don't want to spend all your time investing in things that are combustible, that are going to burn up, that have no eternal value. That doesn't mean you can't enjoy life, but it does mean your priority is to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. So how many of you here are procrastinating? Maybe the Lord has spoken to you to get involved and to serve the Lord. It may not be in this building, but he wants you to serve him and you keep putting off the promptings of the Holy Spirit. There's a second problem that we deal with when it comes to serving the Lord, and that is distractions. Distractions. Notice, if you will, verses 3 and 4 of Haggai 1. The word of the Lord came through Haggai the prophet. And then notice what God says in verse 4 to them. Is it a time for you yourselves to live in your paneled houses while this house lies in ruins? Ouch. God says, you know what? I don't have a problem with you building houses. I mean, after all, you came back from Babylon. You got to rebuild your house. But here's the problem that I have. You are more focused on your house than you are on my house, the temple. You're living in your paneled houses 
while my house is in ruins. You see, the problem was this. The Israelites, because of laziness, opposition, procrastination, they ended up delaying rebuilding the temple. And you know what happened? They ended up slowly but surely getting distracted by the things of the world. Nothing wrong with having a nice house, but they became focused on that, and God calls them out on it and says, hey, I don't have a problem with you building your house, but I have a problem with you focusing in on your house, neglecting my house. My, my, things have not changed, have they? How many Christians today are more focused on their houses? And listen, if you want to have a well-manicured lawn, if you want to have a nice house, if you want to remodel your house, you want to change the living room, you want to get a TV put on the wall, that's fine. But listen, God says don't let that become a distraction. And it's not limited to houses. It could be vacations. You know, you know what I notice in the American church as a pastor? I've been pastoring almost 25 years. How much people are in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out, in and out. There's no consistency. Most people show up to church once a month. And I'm not saying it's wrong to travel. I'm not saying it's wrong to have leisure. But listen, kids, sports, leisure, entertainment becomes more important than the things of God. That's a problem, and that's what God has a problem with, distractions. For some of us, it could be sports. Nothing wrong with sports. It could be our children. We make idols out of our children. I know some homes, and I saw this in Jersey, I saw it in South Carolina, where parents worship at the throne of their children. If the children are going to play sports on Sunday, and they're going to stay out of church for six months, the parents will genuflect to the kids, rather than saying, no, I'll let you play sports, but the Lord is first. See, we got a lot of distractions in our culture today. Some of them are good. We need to enjoy these things. God and His providence has allowed us to enjoy them. So I don't want to make you feel guilty for watching a football game or enjoying this and that or the other. But listen, serving the Lord needs to be a priority, and we often get distracted. I was reading about a judge in Oklahoma who got distracted during a murder trial. Rather than listening to the trial intently... She was texting the whole time. She had it on her lap so no one could see it. When they confiscated her phone, they found out that during the murder trial, she had texted 500 times. And she was texting the bailiff, and they were both joking with each other, making fun of the jury. Oh, look at his physical features. Oh, look at the, look at the lawyers. <laughs> they want to disbar her. She wasn't doing her job. She was distracted. And we all can get distracted by the things of this world. When I was in seminary, my wife gave me an assignment. She said, I want you to go to the grocery store. And I took my older daughter and she said, I need you to get milk. So I said, okay, I'll go get milk. Singularly focused. So I go to the grocery store and I'm intent on getting milk. And then all of a sudden, my daughter sees the candy. Immediately, she gets distracted by the candy and I had to pull her away from it in order to get the milk and get out. You know what? We're attracted and distracted by the candy of this world. And we all have to guard our heart because there's so many things vying for our attention. It could be the internet. Some of you spend hours on the internet, but you can't spend five minutes reading the Word of God. There's a problem with that. When I was in high school, my idol was going to the gym because I played football. That was my idol. It's not today, man. I just want to get in and get out. I can't stand going to the gym anymore. I just want to get in and get out. But when I was in high school, listen, we all have distractions we struggle with. The Israelites, it was their homes. 
And it was a legitimate thing. They had to rebuild their house so they can live in it, but it became their focus and their idol, and that was the problem. How about you this morning? What is your distraction? Is it a person? Is it a place? Is it a thing? What is keeping you from serving the Lord like you should? There's a third problem that we often face in serving the Lord, and that is opposition. Opposition. Notice, if you will, Ezra chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. Now, this is not in Haggai, but this is a parallel passage because Haggai, Zechariah, Ezra gives us more detail about what was going on with the Israelites. Notice the opposition in the book of Ezra. Now, when the enemies of Judah and Benjamin heard that the people of the exile were building a temple to the Lord God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel, there he is, he's mentioned in Haggai, and the heads of the father's households and said to them, let us build with you, for we, like you, seek your God, and we have been sacrificing to him since the days of Eshradon, king of Assyria, who brought us up from here. So ostensibly, they seem to want to serve the Lord. Seems good. But the Israelites read into it, but Zerubbabel and Jeshua, that would be Joshua and the rest of the heads of the father's households of Israel, said to them, you have nothing in common with us in building a house to our God. You say, why would he say that? That's so unchristian. They were Samaritans. They were half-breeds. And they really were opposing the Lord. If you read the book of Nehemiah, they did that as well. But we ourselves will together build the Lord God of Israel as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. Then the people of the land, look at, here it is, here's the opposition, discouraged the people of Judah and frightened them from building. They laid the foundation and they were going to build the temple, but because of fear, they frightened them, psychological warfare. And they hired, verse 5, counselors against them to frustrate their counsel all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Remember, Darius is mentioned in Haggai 1.1. And then in verse 6, it says this, Now in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. This was politicized. Politics always gets in the way. Have you noticed that? The government always persecutes God's people. We've seen this historically. And then in verse 24 of Ezra, it says, the construction of God's house in Jerusalem had stopped and remained at a standstill until the second year of the reign of King Darius, king of Persia. That's when God raised up Haggai. So here they are. They start building their homes, and then they start building the temple, and then they face opposition. Rather than persevering through the opposition and trusting God, they give in to their enemies, then they get distracted by their homes, they get lazy, and then they procrastinate. It's not time to do the work of the Lord. It's not time to build the temple. Opposition. You say, well, Mike, I mean, can you blame them? Well, in one sense, no, but on the other hand, yes, because if you read the book of Nehemiah, when Nehemiah came back with that third wave to Jerusalem, he rebuilt the walls, and they faced opposition. And you know what Nehemiah did? He persevered through it. God protected them and they rebuilt the wall in 52 days. So Nehemiah did not listen to the enemies and he refused to give in, but the Israelite community did under Haggai. And so God has to raise up Haggai and Zechariah to say, hey guys, stop letting your enemy cause fear and keep you from doing the work of the Lord. You want to know a third reason why a lot of Christians don't do the work of the Lord? They face opposition. They face challenges. 
They have challenges in their marriage. I've seen marriages where a person gets pulled away from God and they're no longer going to church or serving God. Or it could be athletics. It could be opposition with your friends. It could be opposition from uh, politics or whatever it is, the government. Sometimes the opposition is the world, sometimes it's the flesh, sometimes it's the devil, and the Bible says those three enemies are going to basically come against us to keep us from doing the work of the Lord. Listen, Satan can't touch your spirit once you're saved. He knows you're a child of God, you can't lose your salvation, but let me tell you what he'll do. He'll change his tactics and he will try to derail you to keep you from making an impact in the kingdom of God. He will sideline you. He'll use distractions and he'll use opposition. And so we got to be aware, sometimes the opposition is circumstances. Sometimes it's health, and I get it. If we have health issues, sometimes we can't do what we used to do. I get it. But we can intercede. We can pray. I've seen people in their 70s and 80s have a zeal for the Lord, and they're serving the Lord in the limited capacity that they have physically. Don't let opposition keep you from serving the Lord. There's a man by the name of John Aquari is his name. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it right, but he's from Tanzania, and he was a, a long runner. He would engage in these marathons. Well, he decided to enter the 1968 Olympics in Mexico City. And he went there, and he qualified, but he faced an opposition or a challenge that he wasn't aware of. Because it was elevated, the altitude was higher, he got a lot of cramps in his legs. But he decided, in spite of that, he was going to run in this Olympic race. And so he ran, and the story says, this is a true story, that while he was running, his feet got tripped up with some other runners, and he fell to the ground, busted his shoulder up, ended up messing up his kneecap, and scraped his body. He could have stopped. He could have quit. But you know what he did? He ended up running the whole thing, limping. He finished an hour after everybody was done. They already declared the winner. There was about a 1,000 people still in the stadium when he finally entered the stadium, and they began to cheer him on. He crossed the finish line. The reporters came up to him, and they said, Sir, why would you finish this race? He said, My country sent me here not just to enter the race but to finish the race. And see, God wants us to finish well because we have glorification coming. We have heaven coming. And you know what? We're going to have setbacks. We're going to be opposed. We're going to get discouraged. We're going to get knocked down. We've all been there before. But you know what? Someone who has their focus on the Lord is going to get back up. They're going to keep serving the Lord, and they're not going to quit. We all get discouraged at times. We all get broken by the circumstances of life. We all say, Lord, why am I going through this? But you know what? You don't walk away from God. You serve the Lord. You don't let opposition keep you from doing the work of the Lord. Well, there's one final problem that we deal with when serving the Lord, and we won't finish this point up this morning. We'll pick it up next week, and that is disobedience. Disobedience. Notice, if you will, verse 5 of Haggai 1. Now, the Lord of hosts says this, and he's talking through Haggai to the people. Think carefully about your ways. I love that. In other words, do self-inventory. Consider the ways of the Lord. In other words, God is saying, I want you to do some evaluation. You know, we don't do enough of that in the American church. We don't do self-inventory. God wants us to think through issues. He wants us to evaluate. 
He says, think carefully about your ways, and then he's going to tell them what to think about. You have planted much, but harvested little. It was an agrarian society. They planted a lot of seeds. They didn't see a big harvest. And then he says this, you eat, but never have enough to be satisfied. When you open your refrigerator, all that's in your refrigerator is a jar of pickles and a box of baking soda. You drink, but never have enough to become drunk. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. And by the way, God's not encouraging drunkenness here. That's, what, that's not what it means. I don't want you to walk out saying, hey, Pastor Mike said we can get drunk. You put on clothes, but never have enough to get warm. The wage earner puts on his wages into a bag with a hole in it. You know what God is saying when he said, think carefully about your ways? He says, I want you to make a connection between your disobedience and the lack of prosperity that you're experiencing. Because you are disobeying me and not rebuilding the temple, I am not prospering you. I am devastating your economy. He goes on, verse 7, the Lord of hosts says this, think carefully about your ways. I want you to make the connection. And you know what? Sometimes we don't connect the dots as Christians. There is a connection between your disobedience and the lack of prosperity. So God says to them in verse 8, you could obey me. Go up into the hills, bring down lumber, and build the house. Then I will be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. By the way, Israel, you expected much, but then it amounted to little. Hey, man, I'm ready for the harvest. Oh, wait a minute. I got more months than I do money. You expected much, but then it amounted to little. When you brought the harvest to your house, I ruined it. Why? This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. Because my house still lies in ruins while each of you is busy with his own house. In other words, God's saying, I'm not prospering you. Now, let me make an important theological distinction here. There is a distinction between the Old Covenant and the New. In the Old Covenant, the emphasis is on the material and the physical. There was the physical land. There was physical sacrifices. There was physical blessings. There are physical priests. You had the tribe of Levi. Everything was physical and material. And so if you read the blessings and the curses in the book of Deuteronomy, God says, if you obey me as a lifestyle, here's what I'll do for you. I'll bless you. If you don't obey me as a lifestyle, I will curse you. Now, when you get to the new covenant, the shift is different. The emphasis in the new covenant is not the physical and the material. The emphasis in the new covenant is the spiritual and the eternal. And so you don't, you don't always see a connection between obedience and material prosperity. There are Christians that obey the Lord, and sometimes they don't prosper physically. I've seen people disobey the Lord and still prosper on their job. Jesus says, store up your treasure in heaven. See, that's the emphasis. So you don't want to take this and you don't want to say, well, if I just obey the Lord, I'm always going to prosper. Now, there is a general principle there because remember in James 1, James says, if you hear the word and do it, you will be blessed. There is a general principle in the new covenant that if you obey the Lord, he will bless you. But that's not always the case materially. But under the old covenant economy, God is saying, the reason I'm devastating your economy is because you are neglecting my work. Notice what it says in verses 10 and 11 as we close with this verse. So on your account, the skies have withheld the dew and the land its crops. 
I have summoned a drought on the fields and the hills, on the grain, new wine, olive oil, and whatever the ground yields, on man and beast, and on all that your hands produce. In other words, God's saying, I'm drying up your economy. Now, are you listening? Say amen. If God wants to get America's attention, you know what he can do? He can devastate our economy. That's how God gets our attention. You see, many times when we get distracted, and again, I'm not, we all struggle and we all battle. I'm not talking about when we get distracted as a pattern, and when we stop doing the work of the Lord and we're not seeking the Lord, God has ways of getting our attention. And you know what? He knows each of us individually. He knows what button to push to get our attention. If God wants to get America's attention, He could devastate our economy. And listen, I'm not hoping for that. But I'll tell you what, it'll get this country's attention. COVID got our attention. You know, I do Facebook Live once a week just as a little side thing for the other churches, and I do a teaching. I'm in 2 Corinthians, and I remember when COVID hit, man, the number of people that were tuning in was just exponential. You remember when 9-11 hit? How many people came to church? It was superficial, and then it died out. See, if God wants to get us our attention, He could devastate our economy. I'll tell you what, Americans will be on their face. Oh, God, why is this happening? God's like, because you're not interested in me. You are distracted. And so disobedience was the problem. And God says, you could obey me. Go up into the hills and get the wood and build my house. I was at Myers this week, and uh, I got out of my truck and was walking, and there was this couple. They had two little kids, and the one child began to run away from the mom and just go off into the open road area. And she was like, hey, what are you doing? She's like, get over here. And the child wasn't listening, kept going. So then the father says, hey, son, you're not my son. But my son ain't going to do that. And then he turns around, looks at me. He says, did you see that? He said, my son ain't doing that. I'm like, hey, I'm just an innocent bystander here. You're calling me out. But immediately, being a preacher, I thought of a sermon illustration. Isn't that how we operate? You know, we're holding the hand of our father and bam, we go out in the open parking lot. God says, that ain't my son or my daughter. Now again, we're going to disobey the Lord. We're, we're not perfect. God, God's, God's method of dealing with us is mercy. His mercies are new every morning. God is gracious. He doesn't deal with us according to our sin. That's why 1 John 1, 9, confess your sins and he'll forgive. But listen, when we become recalcitrant, when we're rebellious, we don't want to do the work of the Lord. You know what? Sometimes the Lord has to get our attention. And maybe some of you are going through struggles because maybe life has struggles, but maybe God's trying to get your attention. Now, next week, we'll pick up in chapter 2 because he's going to this theme of disobedience We'll pick it up there as well and finish this point. And there's several other points on some of the problems that we deal with in serving the Lord. But let's review them this morning. What are some of the problems that we face when it comes to serving the Lord or doing the Lord's work? Number one is what? Procrastination. What's the second one? Slide. Slides. No. We're reviewing the points. <laughs> We got to get some caffeine up there. All right. So we got pro procrastination. What's the second one? Distractions. What's the third one? Opposition. And what's the fourth one? Disobedience. There's several more, but we'll pick up disobedience next week. Let's pray. 
Father, we thank you this morning for, again, instructing us in your word in the book of Haggai. Help us, Lord God, to not allow the things of this age to distract us from serving you. Father, we know we're going to deal with problems. And Father, forgive us when we procrastinate. Forgive us, Lord, when we allow distractions or we allow opposition. And Father, even disobedience. Help us, Lord, to do your work. And maybe the Lord has spoken to you this morning. Maybe he wants you to get involved. And it may not be in the building on Sunday morning, but the Lord wants you to put him first and he wants you to be doing his work. He wants you to advance his kingdom. Say yes to the Holy Spirit. Be willing to follow what the Lord is asking you to do. We have a lot of ministries here that you could get involved in. Maybe your ministry is starting at home with your children and praying with them and teaching them the word of God and praying with your spouse. Father, we thank you. Bless us now in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Let's stand together. And again, as you go out, remember, you are the salt and light of the earth. We have ABC cards. Use them. Plant a seed this week. Let the Lord open a door. Yesterday we did um, street evangelism. The homeless team went out. Uh, It was kind of a rainy day. It was a little bit cold. But I'll tell you what, we had a lot of opportunities to give donuts and share the gospel with people. God will open doors. But listen, you got to have the mind of Christ to see what God is doing. Let's worship together.